You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Katie Burke. Hi, everyone. Today on the show, I have Master Carver, Cameron McIntyre. Welcome to the show, Cameron. Hi, Katie. How are you? I'm good. I'm excited to finally have you on. I've been meaning to for a while, but I had uh, Marty on first, and I didn't want to put y'all like next to it. I want want to give y'all some distance. (laughs) Right. Well, that's fine. (laughs) Well, I have a a lot of questions. um, The audience says I know you, but there's a lot of things I don't know about you. I know you grew up in South Carolina, and now you're, but now you're in Virginia. And I ask this question basically to everyone that comes on the show. I want to ask it to you a little more specifically because I think what I know about you, it would resonate more. So I don't want to know like just when you began hunting, but what was that moment for you? Because I know you started young. What was that moment for you? You know, and it's hard to, that moment's hard to ex- explain, but like that moment that you get that almost like all moment with nature and waterfowl. When was, when was that first moment that you remember that feeling? Well, I mean, I, I started hunting, you know, my father took me when I was very young. I mean, I probably was duck hunting. I mean, he probably took me a few times when I was as young as four or five years old. And so the, you know, the, the very first hunts, I'm sure I don't quite remember them, but uh, the one thing that I do remember that just sort of has always stuck in my mind is, uh, you know, when we did go hunting, we always got there really early. I mean, number one, we, we were hunting in a, like a big salt marsh that was kind of public. I mean, anybody could hunt there, but there wasn't, there wasn't that much competition. I mean, you sort of had your spot. Uh, but I just remember we always got there way before legal shooting time. And, you know, we'd put the decoys out. And we'd either sit out in the decoys for a while before we got in the blind or we'd, we'd get in the blind. And, I mean, just in the dark hearing the, the wings, you know, because back then that was the early 70s. I mean, there was thousands of ducks down there, and you'd, you'd hear the pintails peeping going over and the widgeon whistling and just the wings and the distant highballs and, you know, the smell of the marsh. I mean, I just remember that to this day. And, uh you know that's so much different than being at home in your little neighborhood. It, mm-hmm. it was just it was just a great you know great feeling. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean, and and I have found I have found that that feeling I have searched for it, and it has informed my life in different ways than I ever kind of imagined it would. Even 
now I think about it like as an adult. But for you, how did that initial love of it inspire your life from then on? Well, I mean, I just think that even when I was really young, I just, for me, nature is where it's at. You know, I could I could care less about going to Manhattan and eating in a good restaurant or drinking a, a, a five hundred dollar bottle of wine. I mean, those are those are different experiences. But you know, my whole life just revolves around nature, and uh, and it all goes right back to that. Yeah. And uh, so that sort of uh, you know, I grew up. I didn't really know what I was going to do or what I was going to be, but I just knew that somehow I had to have a life that was somehow close to nature. That's really interesting. Yeah, I didn't think about it, but like as a kid, like I run a lot too. So like if I'm not hunting in the winter, I'm running on trails and I guess I'm always searching for it. Like it's something that had formed me really young and it stuck with me. It's just kind of there. Right. And I think hunters right. really understand that feeling, you know, like it's the real passionate hunters. It's kind of with us forever. Right. Yeah, and, you know, it takes a while to learn. Uh, you know, you sort of learn who you are, but that takes years. And, <laughs> and you know, you're and you're still, um, you know, through the process of learning about art and decoys and hunting. I mean, you're you're still the, the person you are. Sort of changes as you as you get older and you reflect back. And uh, you know, so it's 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 neat to go through these different different phases. But uh, you know, nature to me is just it, it's just fascinating. It never loses its interest and uh i can't get enough of it yeah i i totally get it so to move from there so you started hunting young and then um i know your dad was a collector and um trader in decoys and older decoys so i know that's where you were right. introduced to um older decoys but when did you at, i know you started young but when did you um get interested in them and to the point of actually wanting to try making them well, I mean, I can tell you exactly when that happened. Um, you know, we grew up, I grew up down in Beaufort, South Carolina, and we hunted down on the Cumbie River and the Wimby River. And um, there were there was really no history of decoys down there. You know, when I say decoys, I mean wooden decoys. Right. Uh, the decoys we hunted with when I grew up were L.L. Bean court decoys, which are, which are very good decoys. But I remember my father went on a... Uh, we went on a goose hunting trip up to Cambridge, Maryland, and that would have been in, I guess, 1977. And anyway, when he was up there, he met this guy who collected old decoys, and he ended up bringing a whole carload of wooden decoys back home with him from this goose hunting trip. And, uh, you know, I was, I guess, you know, nine years old, and I was waiting for him to get home to see the geese that he shot because we didn't have geese in South Carolina. I was, I was just real excited about <laughs> what was going on and he uh i remember he backed the car up to the front door of the house and popped the trunk and in the trunk were like 150 old wooden decoys that he had brought back from maryland and i just it, to me that was just the biggest moment of my life is looking in that trunk of the car and seeing all those old ducks and then you know bringing them in the kitchen and we washed them off and and got the dust off of them and I just remember being really excited about seeing those things and the next morning I got up I was you know putting them on the kitchen table and making drawings of them and uh then I I went to the back of a Ducks Unlimited magazine I, I still have the issue it's out in my shop it's from 1977 and there was a an ad in the back for a carve your own decoy kit you know and so I ordered that kit and tried to make my first uh, my first decoy. I'll have to look up that magazine because we have all the magazines here. So I have to look that. I think it's got a ring neck. I, I I have it out there. I'd have to I'd have to go find it. But anyway, it's either got a black lab on the cover or a ring neck. I but I have the magazine and so yeah, Dr. Limited had a. You know, had a role in get, getting me started. <laughs> That's carving. funny. Yeah, I'll have to go find it and post it for the listeners after this when it comes out, when this uh, interview comes out. So, like you said, you, you were drawing those decoys when they get. So, did you always have an interest in art and drawing? Like, did that kind of just all, was that always there as well? Yeah, that was, that was always there. I, you know, it's funny because probably when I was in the first grade, I was probably better at drawing than all the other kids in my class and 
maybe that was true up until about the fourth or fifth grade, but you know, all kids can draw really. Uh, you know, there'd be a few that can't, but so I, I really wasn't that, that much different than anyone else. But for me, it wasn't just a casual interest. I mean, I, I wanted to know how to draw. I was very interested in art. Again, that does go back to Ducks Unlimited magazine. I mean, I'd look through there and see the Maynard Reese paintings and David Moss and thought, boy, one day, you know, if I could paint something like that. Uh, so I actually, you know, my mother, I was so crazy about drawing that she found uh, a lady in town to uh, give me like private drawing lessons when I, I was probably in about the fourth grade. She would take me over there on Saturday mornings and drop me off for a few hours and I'd have my drawing lessons. Yeah, I used to do that too. I had a lady in my little town that I went about the same right. age. Yeah. <laughs> and she would give me lessons and I'm still like good friends with her today. Right. <laughs> yeah, because like we I don't know about you, but we didn't have we didn't really have art at school. I went to a little small school and Yeah, we did not have art class. Um I think uh, you know, it's funny because there was art class like in high school and I never even took it. <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't want anyone to know. I've I've always been secretive. I don't know why, but I didn't want anyone to know that I could draw or paint or anything. And I would, you know, I was always doing it and I would even skip school. The only two things I ever skipped school for in my life was to go duck hunting or sometimes I would skip school and stay home and do paintings. You know, I did it a little bit, and that's funny that you said that, but I didn't really want people to know, because every time somebody knew, um, I don't know if you felt this way, but every time someone knew that I could draw well or paint well, they wanted me to paint, like, their dog or something, and I was like, I don't I don't want to do that. Hey, yeah, hey, can you draw a picture of my dog? Or... Yeah, and I was like, no, it's no, like, I don't, hey, don't, don't want to do that. <laughs> that's not me. Yeah, I wasn't that person either. Like, that's why I didn't make it in art school, because I couldn't handle uh, somebody telling me what to draw. Right. And then, I mean, you know, some people do truly have natural talent. Like, they can catch on so fast and just, it's amazing what they can do. Actually, my oldest son has, has that gift. Oh, yeah. But I can tell you right now, I did not have that gift. I mean, I, I guess if I had a talent, it was just that I wanted to do it so bad. You know, I was obsessed yeah. with it, but in terms of my my results, I, I, I wasn't that good at any of it. You know, the right. draw I wasn't that good at the drawing. I wasn't that good at the painting. When I started carving, I made lots and lots of very bad carvings before I got, you know, better. Yeah, I wasn't either. Like, I always was jealous of those people who could draw from memory and, and all that. And I, like, that was never me. I had to like really pay attention right. to what I was doing. Yeah. And when I got to art school, I got a little, it also made me feel bad about myself. So <laughs> that was, but yeah, that's interesting that you said it. Cause, and you do have to make so many mistakes to kind of figure out what you're doing. And, you know, I, I also like want people to know, like, especially with carving too, I, I've never carved, but I'm sure it's the same way. You got to like mess up a lot. Yeah, no, you you know you have to make mistakes. I mean, there's lots of people that just think it's some sort of a smooth process from you know you know step A, step B, step C. But uh, you know, with me, it was like two steps forward and five steps back. But yeah, but every now and then, you know, you would you know you make a mistake and you learn something from it, and then the light would go off in your head, and it's like you know I I I won't do that again. And then, then right. you know, then you just slowly take these baby steps and make these forward, you know, forward progress. And then, uh, you know, part of it, too, is I started going to decoy shows and meeting because I was pretty isolated down there. I mean, I, I didn't know what kind of wood to carve. I was using yellow pine, which is, you know, super hard and real coarse grained. And I was using a buck knife. Uh, and so, I you know, went to some shows and I met people that did this for a living and they gave me some pointers <laughs> that you know really helped me out a lot to to get me on the on the right track to uh, using the right wood and the right tools and I mean I knew nothing about woodworking I took shop class in high school and I'm sure my little jewelry box was probably <laughs> one of the worst ones in the class but um you know the more I've learned about this you know craftsmanship and all that it's 
it's like a state of mind. I mean, it, it's something that you just have to strive for and you have to just tell yourself, Hey, you know, I, I can do this and I will do this. Yeah. And, uh, and that's how it works for me. So you mentioned uh, meeting people and getting people to help. So who was some of your early mentors in carving? Well, I mean, without a doubt, the person that gave me the most, you know, help in, in, in lots of ways was a guy named Grayson Chester. Okay. And I just kind of met him, you know, uh, at a decoy show in Virginia Beach. I think that was in about 1979. And I... Uh, Told him, you know, I went up to him and told him that I really was interested in carving, and and he just was so nice, and he just said, you know, what kind, of, you know, how, what are you doing, and show me what you've done, and anyway, I showed him what I was doing, and he basically showed me what what he was doing, and then gave me a lot of pointers, and then I'd call him on the phone all the time, and then the next thing you know, he said, you know, why don't you next summer, why don't you come up and and stay with us for about a week, and. uh you know, we'll we'll do some carving. And I was about uh, 12 years old, maybe 13. And uh, so I, I came up to his house in Virginia, which is actually now it's about three miles from where I live. And then Grayson showed me, you know, a lot of things about drawing and uh, wood and how to use traditional tools. And, and uh, so then he he actually took me and introduced me to another carver who's a master craftsman named Mark McNair. And, um, Mark was very helpful in the beginning and, you know, showed me a lot of things about sharpening knives and some specialty tools and different ways to work wood and to sort of slow down and enjoy the process of woodworking. And, you know, and it isn't really how fast you can, carve the decoy from start to finish. I mean, it's about different steps of enjoying the process and understanding form and all that. So, so those two uh, men helped me out quite a bit. And then I admired other decoys by a, a local guy named Pete Peterson. And uh, there was another fellow named Reggie Birch. And he, he gave me a lot of, uh, a lot of help with tools and all when I, when I moved up to Virginia. Yeah. So before, Virginia, like at what point, so you were carving, I mean, all through high school, and right. at what point did you think about this as an actual career? Was it before college, or did you go to college and then realize, like, okay? Pretty this- much, uh, it was sort of one of these moments where I realized, I was I was going to college majoring in art, and, I was, and, and really deep down in my heart, I thought I was going to be a painter. I mean, I wanted to be a landscape painter, and, and uh, and I was pretty good at it. Um, I definitely was way better at that than I was portrait painting. And uh, but uh, things just—I could just tell college wasn't working out for me. Um, when you're young, you know, you want everything to happen right now. Uh, and and I just—I was frustrated. I was mostly frustrated with myself, but I was—you know—frustrated with some of my teachers and. Then I dropped out of college and started going to this museum in Charleston called the Gibbs Museum of Art, and I took some studio painting classes there with a with a super person named William McCullough. He's a great painter. Studied with him for about a year. He actually invited me to stay with him uh, and his family, and you know, gave me some after class uh, advice and 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 uh, help. And I just decided, you know, I I think I'm just gonna. One of the first time I ever came to the Eastern Shore was actually on a hunting trip, and uh, I just fell in love with the place, and I just decided, you know what, I'm going to pack up all my stuff and move to the Eastern Shore of Virginia huh. and try to be a decoy carver or a painter. I, I wasn't really sure what I was going to be. Yeah. And uh, so when I was 20 years old, I, I said, uh, Mom and Dad, I'm moving out, and that's what I did. The Gibbs Museum, is it a teaching museum as well? Like, I didn't, I've never heard that it also did classes. Yeah, the Gibbs Museum, uh, you know, it's it's a museum that has paintings and historical artifacts and all that, but separate, they have a separate studio building right across the street from the museum where they teach studio art courses, drawing, painting. Uh, I think they may have even had a pottery course or two there, but you could go there and get some hands-on instruction from people who are actually legitimate artists unlike college where you got a bunch of people teaching that are 
you know, they were, they had their MFAs and all that, but they, in my opinion, they weren't artists. Right. I mean, it really just depends on which one you get. Like every once in a while you get one that is, and then, and then some are just teachers. Yeah, I, I get that. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't, I didn't know that about the Gibbs Museum. So yeah, you moved to Virginia, and I know you have your property there now, but what happens in that time period between when you first moved there, obviously you don't probably have the money to purchase your property. So how, well, where do you have... I did not have the money to purchase any <laughs> property. <laughs> what little bit of money I spent, when I moved to Virginia, I knew nothing about something called winter. <laughs> and the money that I that I had was all spent the first year I lived here on heating oil for this. I lived in a great big farmhouse in the middle of a giant cornfield, and I'm sure it had no insulation, and it was very cold, and I had no money. Uh but uh, but yeah, I, I moved up here. I had a I brought like two duck boats with me. I had a live wood duck in a cage that I had raised from from a little chick on the front seat of the moving van. And uh, Grayson found me an old farmhouse to rent, which I did. And I moved in there. And I didn't have ten cents. And I didn't have any orders for my decoys. Nobody knew who I was. But you know, I had something called the inspiration of desperation, and I just decided that I was going to make it. If anybody on this earth was going to make it as a decoy carver, it was going to be me. And so how I did that is I, I set up a workshop in one of the downstairs bedrooms, and then I set up a little painting studio in one of the upstairs bedrooms, and I would I would do landscape painting, and then I would carve my decoys, and at the end of the day, I would be... You know, when I well, at the end of a week, I would gather up my decoys. I, I still didn't have the confidence in my paintings to try to sell those, but I had to make a living somehow. So I would get my decoys all together, get in my truck, and drive to antique shops, gift shops, any place that I might, you know, any place that I thought that might be interested in a decoy. And, you know, and I was a great businessman because I would walk in there and basically anything they would offer me, I would take. <laughs> So I wasn't driving any hard bargains. So how many were you producing at that point? Because, I mean, I know you don't produce, you're, you're a lot slow, like you don't produce as many as you used to, but at that point when you are trying to make that money, like what was your production rate? I mean, I was never really all that prolific because I always fall in love with, like each decoy that I'm working on, I get too involved with that one decoy. And, uh, but back then I was a lot, faster, you know, because I wasn't as uh, particular as I am now, but uh, I could make a, a decoy in a day or two. And, you know, so I, I might make three or four decoys a week max. Uh, you know, it's, and most of them were hollow, and I was still doing most of the steps then that I'm doing now. But, uh, you know, when you don't have any kind of a reputation, I mean, I was selling, you know, I was hoping to get $100 a piece for them. Yeah. But, a lot of times I was taking like 40 and $50 a piece for them. And, and, but that was great because I, you know, I, I wasn't married. I didn't have kids. I was living by myself. And Hey, if I had 40 bucks, I could buy some shotgun shells. Yeah. So what year was that? Like when you were doing that? The years, uh, that was like 1989, 1990, 91. Okay. So when, when did you start doing restoration work? Like how did you get that gig? Okay. So I, Basically, I, you know, I, I started carving the decoys, and I, I, I started selling them, and then, you know, I guess just by pure determination and the fact that I that I knew that I had to do this, I mean, I started getting quite a bit better at, at making them, and uh, and I was always I always loved the the old traditional style decoys. I mean, that's that's what I grew up with, and and that's what I love. I mean, I admire people like. Tan Bernay that could carve a duck that looked exactly like a real duck, but I just knew right from the start that that was never going to be me. And uh, so anyway, I, the decoys that I was carving back then they all were tied into traditional decoys, and uh, and so I had people at shows would see the the kind of old style decoys that I was making, and then they'd say, "Hey, you know, you you can make something look look pretty old, and it's got the kind of the old flair to it, you know, would you be interested in trying to repair a bill on my decoy? And so I, 
I started doing a little bit of that probably in about 92, I would say. Maybe maybe 91, 92, something like that. And uh and then for quite a few years, maybe 10 years, I was I was overwhelmed with that. I mean, I was still carving my decoys. I was still painting my landscape paintings, but I was fixing a ton of old decoys, which was good and bad. I mean, the good part of it is that it was a steady source of income. And the the best part of all is the fact that I learned so much right. about the old makers. And I mean, I, I had some wonderful decoys in my studio uh, that I fixed. And yeah. so when you, when you fix thousands of those things, uh, you know, parts of their style kind of rubs off on you without, without you even really being aware of it. And so that was probably the best teacher I, I ever had was, was working on all those old decoys. Right. Right. And trying to match those patinas. I mean, you get, you get a decoy that's got a, a, a big tail chip or a, a broken bill or some paint missing. And, you know, these people aren't giving it to you because they they want to be able to tell that it's been fixed. I mean, they want it to be, you know, invisible when you're done. And it's hard, you know, it's hard to match some of that stuff. And uh, but but I learned a lot about patina and paint by working on those old decoys. And uh, you know, it's it's pretty fascinating uh, trying to decipher those old paint jobs and patinas. Yeah, I would think you're almost like a chemist in there trying to figure out what combination. Yeah, there's definitely some chemistry involved. And, uh, you know, if you think you know something about color, um, you know, wait until you have to match, like, you know, say, like, 150-year-old red paint on the breast of a Mason Mallard. Well, you know, when it was first painted, it was kind of, you know, a, a, a brick red, burnt sienna color, and then it's kind of mellowed and gotten smoky and dusty and mysterious, and, you know, then it's got varnish on it, and you just, you know, the, it's like the worst thing you can do is mix up that exact color that it is and try to match it, and, and then you realize that, Right. Man, in order for me to match this patina, I have to start way off in a different direction than I thought, you know, and you got to kind of work your way up to it, if that makes any sense to you. No, it makes perfect sense. And yeah, I can imagine it would drive you mad trying to figure it out. Right. And then now, you know, how I've applied that to my own decoys is I still, I mean, I'll lay awake at night thinking about how I'm going to paint something because, you know, that's kind of how I paint my decoys now is I start way off in a different direction from where I want them to end up. You know, I, I set them up intentionally. You could almost say I, I paint them wrong in the beginning so that I can sort of correct the process as I go. So they'll end up with this kind of mysterious look in the end. And, uh, and it drives me crazy, you know, but I, but I love it. You know, it, it's, it's what I, it's who I am and it's what I do. When you're making a decoy, so like, you and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. 
Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. When you're making the decision, so you've carved it, are you deciding before you carve it or in the process that it's going to be one of these decoys that looks 150 years old or is it going to be one that, you know, isn't? Because you do, you kind of, do you still do both? No, I, I sort of figure that out when I'm doing the drawing because uh, all these decoys, whether it's a hunting decoy or an old classic type decoy, it all starts to, for me, it all starts with, with a drawing and, and the drawings that I do, most of them are like what you would consider to be doodles. I mean, I just start out with little scraps of paper and a pen and I just, I get ideas and I, you know, I'll get an idea in my head for a black duck or whatever. And I'll just start making these little doodles and I'll draw, usually start with the head and then I'll draw the body and then I'm, I'm just, I'll fine tune it. I might draw that little thing like 15 times and then I'll even think about the top view and, you know, try to draw that out. And, and so sometimes I'll have the whole thing more or less visualized in my mind and figured out on paper before I even start working the wood. And then other birds, I'll just kind of have like a great head, uh, like a side profile that I've drawn, but I won't, I won't really know what the top profile is going to look like. Um, and I won't know all the details of the body. And so then it's just sort of a process of discovery as I go along, which is frustrating and fun at the same time. So you don't use a pattern at all, do you? Well, no, I, I don't. Well, I mean, I draw a pattern for everything I make. I mean, I used to draw right on the blocks of wood, which I still occasionally do that. But something that I've learned to do and I would recommend it to anybody else who, who gets into carving is try to find a good pad of, of paper that has pages that you that aren't perforated that won't tear out. And they're getting hard to find. But anyway, get yourself a good big drawing pad. And I draw my ducks very small first on like notebook paper. And then when I find when I get one that I like, I'll draw it full size freehand in the uh in the drawing pad. And then when I go to to make it, I'll trace that drawing from the drawing pad onto a different scrap piece of paper and use that as my pattern. And the reason I do that is if I, you know, if I happen to make something that I really am happy with it when it's done, and, and you know, I don't even know if, if I'm going to be happy until the last minute of the last day. But if I get one that I really, really like, I have that pattern in that notebook and then I know that if, if there was something I want to change, if I want to make it shorter or longer or, or change the head a little bit, I, I have the drawing intact in the in the notebook or the drawing book, and it can't fall out, and I won't lose it because I'm not a very organized person. So you basically do almost like a study of everything. You do. I do. I'm, I, I do definitely do a study of everything. And then another thing that happens to me, which you know, in my opinion, some of the best things that I've ever made, I was working on something else. And while I was working on that, I get some idea that is just so overwhelming in my mind that I, I just, I, suck. I don't know where it comes from, but I can just draw it like right then. And then as soon as I draw it, most of the time I have to stop whatever I'm working on and just start making that other thing because it's like a gift that came from somewhere that I might not get back. Yeah. And, uh, and that's happened to me, you know, five or six times in the past. I mean, it, it's, it's rare, but when that happens, it's, you know, it's kind of special. Do you remember those decoys? I do. Yeah. I, I have a goose, uh, that I, that I made that I actually gave to my oldest son that, that happened like that. And, uh, I have a goose that I made for a fellow, that uh, used to run a magazine. I, I was carving an eider one time, and, and I just, I don't know where it came from, but I got this idea for this goose, and I just stopped working on that eider. Well, I drew the goose right on the back of the eider that I was carving, and it, it was just such a powerful uh, thought um, and inspiration that I just, I had to stop working on that eider right then and, and, and cut, cut that goose out, which, which I did. I'm going to get off decoys for a minute because I have talked to talk. You say you're not a good landscape painter, but you're lying. Well, I've got, <laughs> so. I, well, I mean, I don't want to say that I am because 
most people, in my opinion, that are good at what they do are pretty humble about it. <laughs> but I... Well, I'll brag for you. You're very good. <laughs> I, I've stuck with landscapes. Um, you know, I don't... I, I sort of know who I am now, you know, because with yeah. painting, there's a million different directions you can go. And uh, and anyway, I, I know who I am. I know what I want to paint. And I, I sort of know how to paint now, uh, even though I'm always learning and... And so I, I think I can paint, you know, a, a decent landscape. So do you can do you always do you always have a painting going, or do you just mostly do decoys, or do you still keep uh, landscaping? I have all kinds of painting. I mean, people don't, you know, they they wonder if I paint, but uh, I have probably about forty paintings in my studio right now that are in all sorts of different states of completion. Some of them are done, and. Uh, you know, I make my living mostly with my decoys because I, I'm like every other person. I have to have X amount of money every month to pay my bills. But I just made my mind up a long time ago that with the paintings, I would just kind of paint them at my own speed. So I, I, I don't approach them in a in a business sense the way I do with my decoys. Well, one thing you do that I love about your paintings that I think that you, you can get that, like, I guess hunters would see, is you can grasp that light. You depict that light of early morning, like, nature so well that I, I mean, that I get a reaction from it because it's something I experience. Well, you know, that just all comes from, you know, and, and some people just don't don't understand that at all. I mean, I remember one of the first you know, I always wanted to have a one-man show, and I, I had my work, first one-man show at, at this gallery, and I'll never forget this guy walked in, and he said, they're so dark, you know? And, uh, and I don't know, you know, I know those other people like me, but, you know, I do a fair amount of deer hunting, but, my, you know, my big passion is duck hunting, and if you're a duck hunter, you know, you spend a lot of time in the dark. I mean, I get up at four o'clock in the morning and beat and bang out in the Chesapeake Bay when it's blowing 30 miles an hour in a little 16 foot boat. And you see things and feel things out there at that time of day that most sane people don't know anything about. No, it's true. Like it, they capture that, like there's that specific feeling and moment, like when you put all the decoys out and then you're just, and you're standing there waiting for, you know, shooting time. Like they're just, and everything's so still. And there's barely any light. That's I, I'm almost like brought back to that space. Right, and and that's you know when talking about going through different stages in life. You know, when when I was 20 years old or 25, you know, you go out and you shoot a bunch of ducks, and you come back home, and you know the thing that you dwell on and remember is all the ducks you shot. You know, oh, I remember I made that shot and I made that shot. And now, like if when I go out hunting, I come back and. And I'm thinking about the landscape, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm remembering the color of the trees and I'm remembering the, you know, the, the shadows and the reflections on the water. And, and I'm just replaying that landscape over my mind. And, and, you know, I, and I always love the ducks, but you know, the land, the landscape to me is, is very powerful at this point in my life. Well, when you put the duck in, it changes the focus of it too. Right. And I, you know, I remember I painted a little, and I don't, you know, by the way, for everyone listening, I mean, I don't put ducks in my painting. And people say, well, I don't, I don't really understand why there's not, you know, some ducks or boats or whatever. And, and I, you know, I wondered about that myself for a long time. And, and then it finally dawned on me, you know, that it's the land that, you know, people, people like stories. Um, you know, everybody likes a good story. And I think a lot of people want, they feel more comfortable if they buy a painting that has an easy-to-read story, you know, they want to look at this painting and have it tell them this little story, you know, oh, it's got these ducks over here, and it's got a duck blind and some hunters, and, and so anybody can, can see that story. But the story that I'm trying to tell is the story of the land itself. Like, there's a, there's, that's the biggest story of all, you know, is the tide coming in and the wind blowing and all these forces that create that create your hunt, you know? And, uh, so a landscape to me that doesn't have ducks or, or people or dogs is, is to me, and, and you know, it's not for everybody, but to me, that's the most powerful thing of all. And that, and that tells the, the biggest story. Yeah. And I think when, what I like about it too, is 
when you put, you know, all the other subjects in there, you know, it makes it about that. But I find, I think with yours, just my opinion of your paintings, like when you do that, you would lose the emotion of it. And yours has that, that emotion there of that feeling, what it's like to be there in that land and in, in nature. Well, thank you. I, that, I, that's, that's a great compliment because that's, that's what I'm trying to achieve. Yeah, no, I, I get like a, a, and I've never seen any of yours in person, but I, I definitely have like an emotional reaction. And, and that's when I think as someone who's an art history major and all that, like the reason I love art is for that emotional response. Like I always find everything that I've liked, that's kind of the thing I, I look for. And I mean, that's the same thing that I'm after with my decoys. I mean, the, the same emotional uh, connection you know, I'm not saying I achieve it every time, but that's what I'm trying to get is, is uh, you know, like, for instance, you know, simplicity is, is something that I, that I really like. And it took me a long time to figure this out. But, you know, I'm after something that, that looks simple in sort of an innocent way, but, but in a powerful way, too, because I figured out that if you see something that's simple, but it's beautiful, and then the longer you look at it, the more beautiful it looks, then it's not as simple as you first thought it was. And, um, and, and, uh, and I've seen great old decoys that are like that. I mean, a, a John Blair or a Gus Wilson or a Dudley canvas back. I mean, a Dudley is the perfect example because they look very simple. They are probably the most reproduced decoy in the history of decoys. I mean, Everybody thinks that they can make a Dudley canvas back or they can make a Dudley ruddy duck because they look simple, but they also look very, very beautiful. And there's like a, a raw power about a Dudley. And then when people try to make them, they don't get that because they're, because they are a lot more complicated than first meets the eye. Yeah, no, that's true. You're right. Like when you said John Blair too, like, when you first glance at it, it just seems like your typical regular wooden decoy. But the more you look at it, just how complicated it is. And it's, you know, the line, you know, people talk about artistic line and a lot of people throw that word around. I'm not quite sure they really understand what it means, but you know, it's this continuum of this, of this line that, you know, that flows, you know, up the head and down the back of the neck and across the back. And I mean, you know, those people that made those decoys were probably quite a bit more cultured than your average person today. And they knew about that kind of stuff. And it wasn't, you know, they probably didn't go to school and learn about it, but it, it was just intuitive for them. And, uh, and, and there's a beauty there that uh, it's kind of universal. Right. There's a, almost like a perspective to some of those really great decoys. Like they really thought about the whole form. Yeah, you can, and you know it when you see it, especially when you see it in person. Like you can just, they they kind of jump out at you. And, and you know, and when I was doing a lot of the restoration work, I mean, I'd have someone call me and say, oh yeah, you know, I got a Gus Wilson scoter and it's got a chip in the tail and, you know, I'll send it down to you. And I can remember a few times people sending me decoys, and I mean, I'd take them out of the box, and my knees would be weak. They they were that powerful. I mean, you know, I mean, some of these decoys are are fabulous sculptures. You know, I'm I'm positive that it, that one that when decoys finally get the recognition that they deserve from an artistic standpoint, you know, some of these sculptures are as good as it gets. Yeah, no, I agree. And you're, you're, you get right on it too with it. Like, yeah, that's one thing. There's not, like you and you mentioned Mark McNair and we talked about Mark. There's not many decoy carvers out there that are emulating that today. Right. And it's, you know, it's, it's kind of dying in that way. And um, hopefully there'll be more carvers to come that get as passionate as you, as you have about it. Well, I, you know, I think there's always going to be, you know, a certain number of people. I mean, there's always going to be, People that want to play in a symphony, uh, there's not going to be maybe as many in the future as there has in the past, but there's always going to be somebody that wants to to do that. And I think there's always going to be people that have a you know that have that special spark, and you know, no matter what they want to do. Yeah. Do you have people come to you and ask for advice, younger younger people? I do. Yeah. I never thought I'd be old enough to have that happen, but. 
<laughs> I guess uh, <laughs> I, I guess I'm I'm old enough now that yeah, some of the younger crowd sort of seeks me out, and uh, and they're just like I was when when I was that age. I mean, I thought that everybody had some big hidden secret that they didn't want to tell me, but um, and there are there are some secrets, but you know the the biggest secret is is it just you have to want to do it. You know, it can't be just kind of a once a week hobby. Um, you know, you have to do it a lot to to get good at it, and, and you have to want to do it. And um, and then, you know, and, and the the one piece of advice I give so many of these young guys, and I don't think they they take it, and it's and they don't understand, but they need to go look at as many great decoys and i when i say great decoys i mean decoys of acknowledged greatness like not some decoy that your buddy thinks is great but decoys that are proven to be great you know whether they're purdue's or ellisons or canes or cobs or wards but you know go to a decoy show go to a decoy auction pick up and hold great decoys you know when i was young i called everybody that i knew that had a decoy collection and I went to see them and picked up probably every decoy in their collection and looked at it and smelled it and turned it this way and turned it that way. Oh, yeah. And that's still available. I mean, anybody that collects decoys would probably love to show you their decoys. You know, so, you know, the woodworking part of it, that that's going to come to anybody over time just by the repetition of doing it. But it's the style and the form is, is where... Is, is the stumbling block for a lot of these people. And in my opinion, it's because they didn't study the old carvers enough. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think it's the same with all art. You know, you can't, you have to study the people who came before you if you really want to be great. Absolutely. Because, you know, people, you know, people want to think that they're original. And I mean, I can tell you right now, I have never done one original thing in my life. But, you know, in originality and art, I don't even think is possible at this point in time. And it's the same way with music or, or Hollywood. I mean, there's a very good chance it's already been done. Not that you can't go on and, and do something wonderful in its own right, but, you know, you, you're going to need some historical uh, perspective. Yeah, no, I agree. And it's not saying that you're not doing, I don't know if you say it's not necessarily original, because it's still original, but it's it's you can see the inf like you add your own flair to you you add I mean you always have your personality will come out in what you do, and you know that's the neat thing about about art is that it's so individualistic it you know because there's people that are scholars of art and they can look at any painter in history and tell hey this is a a Monet and this is an early Monet and this is a late Monet and this is an early room I mean every painter every I'm sure every musician, every every artist has their own unique signature if they if they do it long enough that is theirs, you know. And and that's that's pretty it amazing. Is. It's it has its own story. Well, Cameron, this was super fun and I didn't get to like good chunk of what I wanted to ask you about. <laughs> so um, we'll, we'll have to come back on the show, but thank you so much for coming on. Is there anything uh, you'd like to add for our listeners before we sign off? Yeah, I would, I would love to say that one of the things I was thinking about is, you know, people ask me, you know, what makes a good decoy and all that. And I would say that I have no idea, like we're talking about hunting decoys. I have no idea what makes a good decoy because I've seen ducks come into like plywood silhouettes or geese come into plywood silhouettes with no heads on them. I've seen it all when it comes to ducks. And, and so basically as much as I love ducks and I've spent my whole life studying them and hunting them and I live here with them on my farm, I guess I'd like to close by saying I know nothing about ducks. <laughs> That's a strong <laughs> statement to end with, but I like it. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming. It was fun. Well, thank you, Katie, and uh, great talking to you, and uh, hope you have a good new year. Yeah, you too. Hope your rest of your season goes well. Well, we only got a few days yeah, left. No, same here. Well, thanks again to our special guest, Cameron McIntyre. Thanks to our producer, Chris Isaac. And thanks to you, our listener, for supporting wetlands and waterfowl conservation. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit www.ducks.org slash dupodcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside.